The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 12. For those of you who haven't been here or maybe you're visiting, we're going through the book of Acts. The book of Acts in the New Testament, written 2,000 years ago, which is absolutely amazing. 2,000 years. God has preserved it intact as a reliable source of history without error. And not just a human book, but actually inspired by the Spirit of God. So it's a supernatural book. And it tells the birth of the church and the history of the church or the beginnings of the church up until the end of the ministry of the Apostle Paul till around about 60 A.D. So it covers about a 30-year history. And if you are a Christian, this is part of your, your legacy, but also a part of your biography where your faith began in terms of the church and being a Christian. So we've been going through it. And we are now in Acts chapter 12, so that's where we're going to be today. The goal is to cover Acts chapter 12, 1 through 24. That's pretty much the entire chapter. It's a narrative passage. It's a big chunk of Scripture, I realize. But I think we need to cover the whole chapter and not break it up because it has one unified theme, main theme. And also it has one main human character, and that's Herod. That's why the sermon is called Herod Attacks the Church. Herod Herod is mentioned in verse 1 by name. He's called Herod the king. And he's mentioned throughout the passage, either explicitly, I think five times his name is mentioned in this chapter, and then six times he's referred to directly with a personal pronoun or by some other reference. So that he's mentioned over 12 times in this chapter, concluding verse, verse 23, explicitly referring to Herod. So this chapter begins with Herod, evil man that he was. It ends with Herod. And to preserve the continuity of the story, the way Luke, I think, wrote it and intended it for us to be read, we're going to cover the whole chapter today. We'll read through the whole thing and then just stop at certain points to to highlight what we can learn or things that are significant and also take away that are practical and relevant for our own Christian life and also things that are relevant for, for us as a local church and things that are also relevant for the corporate universal church today. So there are practical things definitely to take away. Setting the big picture context regarding the book of Acts, we covered Acts chapter 1, and that was about 30 A.D., just as Jesus Christ rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven. So 30 A.D., Jesus said, wait to the apostles until the Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit did come in Acts chapter 2, and that's when the church formally began on the day of Pentecost. About 30 A.D. Now we move forward. We've seen the gospel spread throughout Jerusalem all throughout Judea, the greater area, spread up to Samaria, just as Christ had promised, and then to other places, down into northern Africa. We saw some references there over to the west, to the island of Cyprus, up in the north, past Damascus, Lebanon, and even further. And Luke's going to keep taking us to the spread of the gospel till it reaches Italy and Rome. And Paul's heart's desire was set on Spain. Uh, fulfilling the promise of God that the gospel would go out to all quarters of the ends of the earth. So the church begins around 30 AD. And here in Acts chapter 12, just to give you a historical context, we're now launched forward about 14 years to about 44 AD. And we know that with some amazing precision. Because verse 1 says, Herod the king. Herod the king. And we know that this Herod died in A.D. 44. 
Josephus, the non-biblical writer but historian, very reliable in many things that he wrote in terms of history, writes about this incident of when this Herod died and the parallels between Josephus and his description of the death of Herod and Luke is amazing. So it's very reliable in terms of the precision. It's around 44 A.D. So the church begins in 30 A.D. Jews are being evangelized, coming to know the Lord. And then about nine years after the church began, we talked about in chapter 10, where God begins to formally incorporate the Gentiles into the church from all over the world. And it took about nine years for that to happen, for Peter to go out and start formally witnessing to Gentiles and Cornelius and his whole household being saved. And at about that same time, we saw this explosion of evangelism and church growth in Antioch up north beyond Galilee, where primarily that was a Gentile church. This is all nine years after the church started. And so the most recent thing we saw in the context of the book of Acts in chapter 10 and 11 was now God is reaching the Gentiles and incorporating them into the church so that believing Jew and believing Gentile, believing Greek are now one in Jesus Christ. No longer God dealing only with the nation of Israel, but now with the cosmopolitan and integrated church, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there has been some persecution we saw. First, the church started out with great blessing, wonderful peace, the blessing of God, at least for the first couple months, where there are no difficulties or persecution or division mentioned in Scripture anyway for the first couple months. And God was blessing the church. Many were being added. The church explodes almost immediately into a mega church of over 10,000 people. And then they do hit a glitch and a couple of trials with inside the church when they had little church division and a trial with Ananias and his wife who lied and tried to steal money from the church. And the church dealt with that. And God sovereignly blessed. And then there was another trial for the church where they began to be persecuted. Persecution first came formally from Jews in Jerusalem. First it was the priests and the Sadducees. And it was religious persecution. And they arrested Peter and John, threw him in prison, threatened him. Then they let him go. Then they intensified that persecution. And then the priests and the Sadducees, the Sadducees, the, the Jewish leaders, the Sadducees who denied miracles for the most part, the Sadducees who didn't believe in angels, this time arrested Peter and all the apostles, the Sadducees who didn't believe in angels, and then God sent an angel to set them free. Sadducees didn't believe in angels. But anyway, and the apostles got out of prison. And that was religious persecution. And that was the priests and the Sadducees. Then it moves on with a more intense persecution of the early church, and that was from the Pharisees, spearheaded by Gamaliel, and then Saul, who would later become Paul. And it, that persecution went beyond Jerusalem. It went Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all the way up to and abroad. And the church just scattered. So that was a huge persecution on the church. Even Christians were being imprisoned, beaten, and some being put to death. So much so that almost the entirety of the church in Jerusalem spread and scattered all over the then known region and world. And the apostles stayed behind. That also, the, the persecution that came from Paul or Saul, that was a religious persecution. So you had religious persecution from the Sadducees, religious persecution from the Pharisees and Saul. And then now we move into more. Oh, then there's a, then Saul becomes a believer, gets saved. 
by the grace and sovereignty of God. And then it, the, the story concludes by saying a little transition that there was peace among the church again. So they went through this duress of persecution and then God gives them some rest and some peace and they, they can breathe a sigh of relief. Oh, we have some peace. We're not being chased through the streets and the alleys anymore. So there's a time of peace, but it's only for a season because now we come immediately to chapter 12 and this is on the heels of God blessing the church in Antioch, the Gentiles, the church explosion, great church growth and God continues to add to the church and then boom, what happens and what sets in Satan never sleeps or slumbers and he brings on a satanic persecution right at the heart and foundation of the christian church and that is at its leadership the head of the church how do you kill something attack something undermine something uh, try to undermine the faith and the hope of all the people as you attack its leadership and that's exactly what we see now in acts chapter 12 where there's a renewed persecution i believe demonically satanically inspired where king herod Herod the king now attacks the leadership of Jerusalem in the church. Unlike the last persecution where, for whatever reason, the apostles stayed behind and they weren't hurt. Now, Herod attacks the, the apostles of the church. So that's what we're going to see here. And this persecution is a little different. Because King Herod, he's not a Jew, really. This Herod, he's Idumean, which means he's an Edomite, which means he doesn't come from the loins of Jacob, who was Israel. He comes from the loins of Esau. Esau, the one cursed son in the Old Testament. And Esau's name was Edom. And the Edomites throughout history, they became known as the Idumeans. And the Herod family were Idumeans. And so he's a, a non-Jew, really. But he's overseeing and responsible for the oversight of the Jewish territory here. Here it is. The Jews have tremendous power the pharisees sadducees great sway over the people so if herod wants to have success in this region where he reigns he needs to win over and ingratiate himself to the jews who are in ruling power and that's the priests the sadducees and the pharisees and so that's what this herod did he showed great favor to the jews he wasn't interested in their religion but he he blessed them with favors he gave them money he bribed their leaders he allowed them to have their religion and their Old Testament laws and their Old Testament traditions and the traditions that they made up. These were the Jews. These were not Christians. They were unbelieving Jews at this point. And so that won the blessing or the favor of this Herod to the Jews in Jerusalem. So that's kind of the context. So the, his persecution that he inflicts on the church, Herod, who was not a Jew, didn't understand Christianity or really Judaism. He just saw this Christianity thing as kind of a flash in the pan, kind of like a cult. An annoying nuisance to the established Jewish religion. And Herod knew that, you know, if I can just squash and persecute and torment these Christians, this, this cult, that'll probably make the Jewish leadership happy. And so that's exactly what he did. He no doubt knew that Previously, the leadership of the church, Peter, had been arrested by the Jews. Uh, Saul, a Jew, and Gamaliel were, were killing Christians. And so Herod, he's a smart guy. He's aware of that. And so that's what you see going on in this chapter. So we're going to divide this chapter into three parts as we just read through the narrative somewhat quickly and stop at strategic points. And so I broke it down into three points here, the title being Herod Attacks the Church. Uh, point number one covers the first four verses 
So we'll look at the prevalence of persecution in this local church, but in the Church of Jesus Christ for the last 2,000 years. The prevalence of persecution is just an ongoing reality of being a Christian, a follower of Jesus. So that's point number one, one through four. We'll look at the second point, which will be the power of prayer. The power of prayer. Many of the Christians, they don't have any resources. They don't have weapons. But they have a weapon. Christians have a weapon. And it's the weapon of prayer. And we see that that is prominent in this passage, verses 5 to 17. That's actually the bulk of this passage is this emphasis on the theme and the reality of prayer. So we'll look at the power of prayer after the prevalence of persecution, and we will conclude the story with the promise of protection from God. In the midst of persecution, which will always be with us, there is the promise of God that he cares about his people. He loves his people. He will protect his people. He'll protect his people sometimes not in ways that we expect, sometimes not in ways that we want, frankly. But God is committed to protecting his people. If you're a Christian, you are precious to God. You are precious to him. He is your father. So it's very encouraging to know of this promise. Before I actually look at the details, follow with me, if you will. I just want to highlight a few passages, from two from the Old Testament and then a couple from the Gospels. These are prophecies. first one I want to read is in, go to Genesis, if you will. If you don't have a Bible, just listen very carefully. Genesis 16. This is about 1,700 years before Christ. This is a prophecy that God spoke to. Uh, God, that God spoke to uh, Abraham's maiden or um, the mother of Ishmael. Now, the promised child that God was going to give to Abraham to create the nation of the Jews was Isaac. But then Abraham took things in his own hands and had an illegitimate relationship with Hagar, who became pregnant. We would say an illegitimate child. But it was actually a life that God gave to Ishmael. He's the giver of life. And that became. And she gave birth to a boy. His name was Ishmael. He was not the promised son. Nevertheless, God blessed this boy, Ishmael. And so that's what I want to read. Genesis 16. The angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, uh, said regarding Ishmael, who was the half-brother of Isaac, Verse 11 and verse 12 of Genesis 16. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael. The Lord hears is his name. Because Yahweh has given heed to your affliction. And this son, speaking of Ishmael, he will be a wild donkey of a man. Just so you know, that is not a compliment. He is not a mild-mannered boy with good etiquette. It's exactly what it what it means. He is going to be a wild ADD on steroids, out of control, even violent. He will be a wild donkey. That is a prophecy from God, Ishmael. His hand will be against everyone. He has many enemies. He has no friends. That's what it means. Everyone's hand will be against him. It will be a reciprocal relationship. He will live to the east of all of his brothers. He's going to live to the east of Israel and the descendants of Israel. He will live in the desert of Arabia. He will live in what we know today is Saudi Arabia. And that's where Ishmael ended up going and having a bunch of descendants 
And they were the enemies of Israel, and they have been for 1,700 plus years, plus our 2,000, so thousands of years. The descendants of Ishmael have hated the Jews, and they continue to do so. And they became primarily the Arab people, which still exist today. The Arab people, in terms of that general area, location, language, ethnicity. There are Arabs who come to know Jesus and get saved. Praise the Lord. But for the most part, throughout history... The Arab people collectively have always despised the Jews. They still do, and you can see it going on today in our world. And the promise from God is, and there's another prophecy in Genesis 22 and Genesis 25 talking further about Ishmael. He's going to be the perpetual enemy of Israel, the Jews, and their descendants. That's Ishmael. Now go to the end of your Old Testament. One more prophecy in Malachi the last book of the Old Testament, just before Matthew, Malachi, one of the last Old Testament books written. This prophet lived about 450 B.C., 450 years before Christ. Several prophecies in his book. One significant one begins at the beginning of the chapter. So I just want to read chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, just to set the context of what we're going to see in Acts chapter 12. Um, So here's what Malachi wrote 450 years before Christ was born. The oracle of the word of the Lord from Yahweh to Israel through Malachi. Malachi, the prophet, speaking a prophecy to the nation of Israel on behalf of Yahweh, who is God. And here's what God said. Israel, I have loved you. I've loved you, says Yahweh. But you say, how have you loved us, Lord? So they question God's love. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Remember, Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob was the son of promise. Esau was cursed and not chosen by God. Esau was violent. Esau tried to kill Jacob. Esau became a perpetual enemy of Jacob and of Israel. And then Esau's descendants were perpetual enemies of Jacob and Israel and the Jews, just like Ishmael and his descendants. And Esau's name was Edom. Edom. The Edomites were descendants of Esau. They hated the Jews. You can find it all throughout the Old Testament, the Edomites. The Greeks and the Romans pronounced it Idumean. The Edomites Edomites were Idumeans. Idumeans. The Idumeans hated Jews. The Arab Ishmaelites hated Jews. And both of them had a patriarch going back into biblical history, Esau and Ishmael, who hated the Jews. They hated the child of promise, Jacob, who became Israel. So the two greatest sworn enemies prophesied by God in the Old Testament were the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Esau. Fast forward to the time of Christ, when a puppet king of Rome was placed over the region of Israel, the promised land, and had authority over the Jews. His name was Herod the Great. Guess what Herod the Great's ethnicity was, his origin? He was an Idumean, directly from the Edomites, or Esau, and he married an Arabian, or he was part of, that was also a part of his heritage, coming back, all the way going back to Ishmael, in Herod. It's amazing in light of the rest of the verse. I want to read Malachi 1, uh, keep going to verse 2. 
God said, Esau uh, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, says God. And I have made his mountains a desolation, appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Verse 4, then Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. So they defy God. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will cast them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. One translation says the Lord has wrath on the Edomites forever. Herod came from the Edomites and the Ishmaelites. No wonder he has this almost inherent, supernatural, satanic, visceral hatred of the Messiah, Jesus. And that's what you see in the gospel stories. And that's what you see in Herod the Great and all the other Herods. Now, if I were to ask you on a quiz, pop quiz, don't say the answer out loud. How many Herods are referenced in the New Testament? Think about that. Well, just so you know, there are six. Six. I'm not going to talk about all of them, but I'll just give you each one and then a passage in Scripture that goes with it or an incident. First, there was Herod the Great. It started with him. Herod the Great, his name was actually Herod. That's what his dad named him. With the, there were four boys, and he was Herod. He was the king at the time of Jesus' birth. He was the one that talked to the Magi. He was the one that slaughtered the babies in Bethlehem. Herod the Great, vicious, wicked, evil, corrupt, immoral. Uh, the second Herod, Archelaus, he was the son of Herod the Great. He is mentioned in Matthew 2.22 when Joseph and Mary heard that Herod the Great was dead, so they start going back, and then they realized, oh, Archelaus, the son of Herod, is still around. Let's go to Nazareth to get away from him. So that's the second Herod, Archelaus. Then the third Herod is Herod Philip II, son of Cleopatra. He is mentioned in Luke chapter 3, verse 1. He's the half-brother of Antipas, uh, the Herod alive in the days of Jesus, and he ruled in the north by Lebanon. The fourth Herod mentioned in the scriptures is Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was alive in the ministry of Jesus. Herod Antipas was the one that beheaded John the Baptist. He is the one that mocked Jesus during that trial when Jesus was being condemned to death. Herod Antipas was son of Herod the Great. Now, then there's a fifth Herod, and that's the one in Acts chapter 12 today. Who's this Herod the king? He's Herod Agrippa I. He's the grandson of Herod the Great. He is the nephew of Herod Antipas, the Herod that reigned during Jesus' ministry. He was also a notorious, hateful, non-Jew ruling over the Jews. All he was concerned about was his power. He spent much of his time growing up under the influence of Caligula, one of the worst Roman emperors there ever was. Caligula became his hero. Caligula gave him power, jurisdiction, land, the title of king, influence. Then he died in Claudius. The emperor also bequeathed much territory and favor to this Herod, Herod Agrippa I. So Herod Agrippa ended up with more territory than his grandpa, uh, Herod the Great. And he ruled over this massive territory. That is the Herod we're dealing with here, Herod Agrippa I. And we know from history that he died in A.D. 44. He was an Idumean, uh, just like his great or his grandpa was. And as a result, he's got this inherent disdain for the Jewish people in his gut. Although as a total hypocrite and being totally pragmatic, he you know, does the political thing to woo their favor. So that is the context. I didn't want you to be confused. As we go now, let's look at the book of Acts, knowing this history of Herod and which Herod we're talking about and a little bit of the 
historical context. There's great blessing, God's blessing the church, and now things change. The church is once again subject to a very threatening persecution. So that takes us to point one here, verses one through four. Let's go ahead and look at it. The prevalence of persecution. Now, at about that time, about what time? Well, about the time where this was, re- there was a revival in Antioch, and the Gentiles were now being incorporated into the church. This great time. It was about that time. We know here it's about 44 A.D., 14 years after the church was born. And it was about that time Herod the the king, or Herod Agrippa the first, because there was Herod Agrippa the second who's in Acts chapter 25, six Herods. So it's Herod Agrippa laid hands on some who belonged to the church. So he laid hands on means to arrest. Oh, uh, the influential Jewish people don't like the Christians, so I'm going to arrest some Christians, and I'm even going to arrest their leadership. See what that does. So he did. So Herod Agrippa arrested some believers in Jerusalem in order to mistreat them. It was more than mistreat them. To brutalize them, really. Verse 2. And one who was brutalized, he had James, the brother of John. So this is James the Apostle. Not James who wrote the book in the Bible, James. James the Apostle. The inner circle of the three, Peter, James, and John, that we read about in the Gospels. So he's James the Apostle. James the son of Zebedee. James in the inner circle of the leadership of the church early on among the 12 apostles. And so Herod purposely goes out and gets James, one of the key leaders of the apostles and the Jerusalem church, and has him put to death, and it says, with a sword. Most Bible scholars believe that means he was beheaded. Now, remember, Herod was trained and raised in the ways of Rome, a popular form of Roman execution of shame, humiliation, and everything else, and to scare the audience that was watching was beheading someone. It was brutal, it was ghastly, it was disgusting. In many ways, it's pagan. A pagan form of execution. Probably just absolutely frightened the church, trying to shut it down. This happened in Jerusalem. Their blessed, beloved leader beheaded. What was his crime? Believing in Jesus. There are Christians in other countries today, we read about it every day, who are being Christians being beheaded with the sword. What is their crime? Believing in Jesus. That would be us if we lived there. Still going on. So this is what Herod did. Now, look at verse 3. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, so the unbelieving Jews, man, they love this. Oh, this is awesome. We tried to deal with the apostles earlier. We tried to arrest Peter two, two times. And we couldn't shut him down. We couldn't shut him up. We arrested all the apostles, and they got out somehow. We commissioned Saul to shut down and kill and uh, exterminate the Christians, and he, he becomes a Christian. He becomes an apostate and gets saved, becomes a Christian. What do we do with these annoying Christians. Well, Herod was their answer. This pleased the Jewish leadership who opposed Christianity. And so to curry their favor, he proceeds to arrest Peter also. I mean, I'm going to go for the very top, and that's Peter. He's the head of the church. He's the man. So Herod arrests him, no doubt, to do the same thing. Make a public spectacle, behead him in front of the crowds. 
scare and frighten the Christians, appease the ruling Jews. Thus earning favor, Herod is thinking. This is a totally political move, a pragmatic move, and really a personal move. And this is political persecution. Earlier I talked about religious persecution from Saul and Gamaliel and the Sadducees, the Pharisees and the priests. That was religious persecution trying to shut down Christianity. They had religious convictions. They truly believed this is false religion. It's hurtful to Judaism. It's hurtful to God's people. It is a blasphemy against God. So they had deep-seated religious convictions, and that's why they were persecuting the church. Herod, he has none of those religious convictions. This is a totally different kind of persecution. He's not persecuting Christians to shut them down because of their religion and theology and it's blasphemy. He could care less. This is political persecution and personal persecution to rise him up in terms of his power and favor with the locals. So Christians are persecuted for different reasons. Well, this ha- he arrested Peter during a feast day during unleavened bread. So you had the Passover meal and then you had a week-long celebration. And technically, among the Jews, you weren't supposed to have any trials or executions during the holidays or the feast days. So Herod doesn't want to upset the Jews, so he actually honors that, and he's going to, so he arrests Peter at this time of the Passover, and then he knows, yeah, I can't take him to court, I can't have a public trial, I can't chop off his head until the feast day is over. So we don't know how long Peter was sitting in prison, but he's in there probably for a few days. Uh, So when he had seized Peter, that means arrested Peter, he put him into prison, Uh, The prison, they think, was probably adjacent somewhere on the temple area or close to it, probably built by the Romans, a prison, a place, a permanent place, a vault where they would put criminals for whatever reason. And the Romans had the authority and access to this prison, apparently. The prison is mentioned several times in this passage. And so they put Peter in this prison. Not only that, uh, they delivered him to four squads of soldiers. Sixteen Roman soldiers, armed soldiers probably, were in charge of Peter. Peter, who had no weapons. But they know Peter, he's an escape artist. He got away the last time. This is the third time Peter's being in prison for being a Christian, by the way. So they throw Peter in prison. Okay, I'm going to, you know, shut him down. I'm going to have 16 armed Roman soldiers to guard him, uh, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So another example of persecution on the church against God's people, against Jesus, and against God himself. And I believe it is satanically inspired. Persecution is a result from Satan doing his dirty deeds through wicked, evil people. It's interesting that in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, that's really a biography and history of Satan. Over the course of 6,000 years and even into the future in the time of the tribulation, Revelation 12. The, the biography of Satan from the very beginning when he fell to the very end when he reaches his culmination in the future during the time of the tribulation, his opposition from God. So you're looking at 6,000 plus history concisely given about Satan in that short chapter in Revelation. And it's amazing that Herod of all people is alluded to in that biography of Satan. Of all the people that God could have chosen throughout history. From Nebuchadnezzar to the Pharaoh of Egypt. Herod is not mentioned by name, but he's alluded to. He is the one referenced at the time when Jesus' life was in danger at his birth. Herod and all the Herods, satanically inspired in conjunction with their own 
wicked, evil sin. Well, the good news is, for Christianity, it doesn't end with persecution, does it? Even though when it seems like it, I mean, well, it was over for James. How come God didn't rescue him? No doubt there were people praying for him and his release and his protection, and yet he died. How come God didn't intervene? Well, God did intervene. God didn't intervene temporally. God intervened eternally and said, James, welcome to heaven. And when James breathed his last, he left this fallen, decrepit world, his own fallen body, his own sin nature, and was catapulted instantaneously with his last breath into the glories of a perfect eternity with Jesus as Savior, God the Father, all the saints, and all the blessed angels. That's a pretty cool answer to prayer, I'd say. God is in control. Look at the power of prayer. Prayer moves God. God is sovereign. He does whatever he wants. He is in control. We can't manipulate him. No one can manipulate him. And yet God chooses to respond to the frail, feeble, finite, weak prayers of his people. Isn't that amazing? And this is one of the greatest examples in the New Testament of that. So let's look at this theme of prayer that's in here. So now Peter is in prison. By the way, this is just an interesting side note. I wish we could talk more about this. But Peter was thrown into prison. I mean, this is a formal prison. Peter is literally, there are 16 Roman guards. They are armed. And literally it goes on to say that Peter is literally chained to two soldiers. He's chained to a soldier on this side, chained to a soldier on this side. In the prison. And so he has to sleep hanging on to these two Roman soldiers. Outside the gate immediately are two more armed Roman soldiers. There's four. And then there's this rotation, fresh rotation. So a total of 16 soldiers responsible for guarding Peter. That's his condition in this cell, this prison. Do you know that in the Old Testament, God's Old Testament economy, there were no prisons. The Jews under the Mosaic economy had no prisons or jails. Can you imagine? God gave 630 plus laws and in that entire justice system, God never never said anything about build a jail, build a prison, have a prison where people, prisoners go in there and sit and rot and wait for trial, sometimes for years and years and years and years. There's no prison to speak of. So every time we see a prison in the Bible, according to what I read, it is of pagan origin. Joseph went to prison. That was from the pagan Egyptians. Daniel went to prison. That was the pagan Babylonians. There are uh, prisons in the New Testament, they're of pagan origin. This is not God's plan. This is not in the Mosaic Law. You can't find it anywhere. Well, what do you do this in the Old Testament economy under the Jewish theocracy starting st- with the days of, okay, here's Moses. He's the leader. He's got the Constitution. He's got the laws. There's a judgment system. There's a justice system. You deal with offenses. How do you do it? And what if there's somebody really, da- what do you do with murderers and dangerous people and kidnappers? Well, God proscribed it, wrote it all out. Here's what you do. If there's a witness, they go to trial. There's a trial. It's weighed before God and a plurality of witnesses. A verdict is rendered in accordance to God's truth. And if it's a murderer and they are found guilty, they are immediately killed. Their life is to be taken by the government according to God. So when you ha- you don't have dangerous people around. They're dead. Examples, Numbers 15, Leviticus 24, There's just a couple of examples of capital offenses in the days of Moses, how they went to trial, dealt with it. So the person was like uh, convicted, tried, sentenced, 
killed all on the same day. That is efficient, isn't it? And so there was no need of prisons. Well, what about somebody with a lesser offense? If they were a thief and they got caught, they had to pay it back, restitution and immediately. There were no prisons in the Old Testament under the theocracy of Israel. They weren't needed according to God. That, that just rocks our world in the way we think of things today, how we have prisons and jails and prisoners in there for years and years and years. And many times justice is never served, never met to the innocent party. So let's go on to this amazing prayer. So now, so Peter, he was kept in prison. That's the bad news. The good news, look at this. But prayer for him was being made fervently by the church of God. So collectively, the people found out about it. Wow, Peter's been arrested. He's probably going to die. And so what did God's people do? Immediately they start praying. That's the only weapon they have. It's the most powerful weapon they have. We don't know how many people were praying. The church of God, it was uh, maybe hundreds and thousands of the believers there in Jerusalem praying for their faithful elder and apostle, uh, Peter. Two things about the kind of prayer. It was a corporate prayer. And it was fervent. Greek word, very specific, and it's in the imperfect tense, meaning it was ongoing, continual prayer. They just kept praying for Peter. God, be merciful to Peter. Watch over Peter. Help Peter to trust in you. Give Peter a supernatural peace of heart and mind so that Peter's not under stress and duress and that he can rest in you, God. You know what? No doubt, I'm sure Christians prayed that, and God answered that prayer. God, give Peter Peace of mind to rest in you in fulfillment of the words of Jesus. Because Jesus warned Peter would be subjected to this. That he would be arrested and thrown in prison. And his life would be in jeopardy. Jesus said that and told his apostles, Don't worry, trust in me, trust in the Spirit. I will never leave you or forsake you. God bless Peter. Peter especially with his temperament who was prone to get excited and dramatic and react and lash out. I mean, think about Peter just before Christ's death. Caesarea Philippi, two months before the death, Jesus tells the 12 apostles, I am going, okay, guys, we are going to Jerusalem right now, and when I get there, I am going to be arrested, and I am going to be crucified. They are going to, the Jewish leadership is going to kill me. And then Peter went, boop. And then Jesus went on after Peter went, boop. They're going to kill me, and then they will bury me, and I will rise on the third day. And then Peter finally, boop, takes his fingers out. Didn't hear the good news at the end. He is incensed. He goes up to Jesus, literally in front of the 11 apostles, grabs Jesus, literally, this is Matthew 16, pulls him aside and rebukes Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. How dare you say you are going to be killed? That is not going to happen. And Jesus wasn't happy about that. He said, oh, you know what? That's a nice sentiment, Peter. Jesus got angry and said, get behind me, Satan. Peter, you are not speaking in concert with God's will. That is a total overreaction by dramatic, temperamental Peter. Then, two months later, Garden of Gethsemane, the night Jesus is betrayed. Judas leads dozens of soldiers, policemen, Sadducees, Pharisees, into the night, into the Garden of Gethsemane, to arrest Jesus. These armed guards with their weapons, and they grab Jesus, and Peter says, "That's I've had it. He doesn't say anything because he knows if I probably if I say something to defend Jesus, he'll say, get behind me, Satan, again. So he bypasses saying anything and he just whips out his sword and he swings for the soldier's head. The soldier ducks and he chops the guy's ear off right on the spot. And Jesus again rebukes him. Peter, put your sword back. 
If you live by the side, the sword, you shall die by the sword. And then Peter picks up the ear, puts it back on the guy's head. Poof, miracle. Everybody falls over flat on the ground. But that, again, is impetuous, overreacting, emotional Peter. Then what happens? Jesus dies, rises again, goes into heaven, sends down the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon Peter the Apostle. He is now indwelt with the Spirit of God. And Acts chapter 2 says he is controlled by the Holy Spirit. And a couple other passages when he's giving sermons. It says he is controlled by the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 11. Peter is controlled and led now by the Spirit of God. God has changed Peter. He's transformed Peter. He has sanctified Peter supernaturally. Peter is a different man. And so these Christians are praying, God, give Peter supernatural peace of heart and mind in prison that he rests in you. And so we go to the scripture. God answers that prayer. And here's Peter. He is in jail. He's tied to these soldiers. He knows he's probably going to get his head cut off in just a day. He's not in panic. He's not screaming. He's not in drama. He's not crying. He's not pleading to be released. He's not saying, I'm not guilty. Let me alone. He's not fighting back. He's not retaliating. What was he doing? Well, verse 6, on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping. Isn't that amazing? Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. You talk about supernatural peace of God. That is the fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5, like you have never seen before. I am going to die tomorrow. I'm going to get my head cut off. But he's tired. And God, that is a gift from God that he could rest and just, he's in peace. He's got these Roman soldiers dangling all over the place. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. He's bound with two chains. Guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. Then all of a sudden, Peter's asleep. And behold, now the detail that happens in verses 7, 8, 9 is amazing. You're thinking, how in the world did Luke know these details? Well, obviously, Peter talked to him and told him when Luke was getting information to write his account. He talked to Peter. And Peter was saying, man, Peter, uh, Luke, you'll never believe it. It was awesome. I mean, I thought I was going to die. And then an angel came and I was sleeping. Can you believe it? I was tied to these soldiers and I thought I was going to get my head chopped off. I'm sleeping at the time. And then all of a sudden, poof, out of nowhere, an angel appears. I know it's an angel because it's like glowing light as bright as the sun. And somebody punched me in the gut in my sleep. And I thought, man, I'm having a bad dream because I felt like I got punched in the gut while sleeping. I thought I was having a vision, you know, like in Acts chapter 10. When I was with Cornelius, I had a vision and I fell into a trance and all this stuff was happening. That's what you see here. Peter is recounting great detail of what happened. And so here's what happened. So behold, Peter sleeping, an angel of the Lord, not the angel, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, poof, instantaneously in that prison. And a light shone in the cell. That's typical of angels from God from heaven. Just this brilliant, gleaming, pure, bright light, sometimes as bright as the sun. You know what? That didn't wake Peter up. He's still snoozing. He is in a deep sleep. And as a result, the angel, it says he struck Peter. It wasn't just, oh, let's be quiet. We've got these 16, we've got these eight Roman soldiers around. Shh, Peter, hey, Peter. Wake, wake up. Don't wake up the soldiers. They're like right here. No, it says he struck Peter. That's very good translation. You could put he punched Peter. That's how deep in sleep Peter was woke him up and he didn't whisper get up well didn't the soldiers hear that apparently not God put a divine anesthesia on these Roman soldiers God does that he so he has to violently wake Peter up 
trying to wake him up. And then he said, so Peter comes, you know, he's groggy, he kind of opens his eyes. Peter, we know, he thinks this is a dream. Wow, I'm in another trance. Uh, this is a dream. Whoa, this is, ow, this dream hurts. That's his mindset. And so look at all that the, the angels have to say. The angel says, get up quickly. That's not the last that the angel says. And his chains fell off instantaneously. Boom. Verse 8. And the angel then said to him, gird up, get your clothes on. And put on your sandal. Get dressed. And Peter did so. All the while he thinks he's in a dream. He's just kind of going through the motions. He's still groggy. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around it. Follow me. Still not with it. Verse 9. And when he went out and continued to follow, and he did, get this, he did not know that he, uh, what was being done by the angel was real. Thought it was a dream. But he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, so they leave these guards by his side, then they go out the gate by these other two guards. They came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. Gate opens by itself. That is a supernatural act, a miracle of God. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed, boom, boop, back into heaven. And then there's Peter all by himself. Maybe a distance, maybe a block away from the prison. It's at nighttime. He is vulnerable. Uh, Open, then, departed from verse 11, when Peter came to himself. <laughs> so finally, his senses, and he realizes, wow, okay, now I know what's going on. I'm awake now. Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. Verse 12. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who is also called Mark. So he knows, wow, okay, close by, there's this house where Christians meet, probably one of the satellites of the early church, John Mark, who will be a missionary with Paul and Barnabas. John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. John Mark, who defected from Paul on the missionary journey that Paul got mad at. John Mark, his mom was a Christian and hosted Bible studies and church services all the time in her house. Probably a woman of means, massive house. She had a courtyard. She had a, a lobby. She had gates. It was a safe place and actually was a headquarters for Christians because there are a bunch of Christians meeting there now, hiding and also praying together. John Mark's mom at the house, and it's close by the prison, centrally located. And Peter knows that. And so Peter heads to Mary's house, the mother of John, who's also called Mark, where many were gathered together, and they were praying. So Peter goes to the house. Oh, there's a bunch of Christians there. Uh, I know key people are there. I'm going to go there. It's safe. So he does. And the Christians, are, they are praying. What are the what are Christians praying for? They're having this huge, massive prayer vigil for Peter. Dear God, not only give Peter peace and rest. God, be gracious. Let Peter out of prison. He's our leader. He's our pastor. He's an elder of the church. God, release him. That's what they're praying. Verse 13. When So Peter finds the house. He knocks on the door of the gate. So this is outside. And you can imagine all the Christians there. They're scared to death. They saw Stephen, one of their leaders, stoned to death spontaneously in public. James, one of their favorite pastors, just got beheaded. They saw the terror that Saul went on. And so they are hiding. They're cloistered. They're leaning on one another and probably scared to death. And no doubt some of the Men leadership are in this house as well. And so what do you do at nighttime? Who, who knocks on the door at nighttime like this other than a policeman or maybe somebody who wants to come and arrest you? And they hear a knock and it's it's frightening. And so what do you do? You send a, a young maiden girl to go answer the door. That's what you do because that's what they did. 
It's not John the Apostle. Here I am to save the day. Let me go get it. Where's that maiden girl? Who? She's 11. Let's send her. She is vulnerable now. And, you know, God blesses this girl because she's not just the maiden girl. He actually mentions her name. Why? So that we can hunt her down in heaven and say, you know, Rhoda, thank you for doing that. Thank you for your courage, your faith in the Lord, your trust, and, uh, you know, being obedient to those cowardly apostle men or whoever was in there making you go to the door. Her name was Rhoda. So he knocked on the door. A servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. So the door's bolted. It's closed. It's thick. Somebody's banging on the door. It's at an odd hour of the day. And verse 14 says, she recognized Peter's voice. Oh, wow. It's P. It's Peter. It's my pastor. Wait, we were just praying for him. Dear God, release Peter. Yay. And you would think she'd open the door. Well, she didn't open the door. She is so excited when she hears Peter. Because of her joy, she can't think straight. That's what girls do sometimes when they're young and they get excited. They can't think straight. They just want to celebrate. And that's what she's doing. Because of her joy, she did not open the gate. But she ran into the Bible study and the prayer meeting, and she announced to everybody, Peter's standing in front of the gate. We God has answered our prayers. And you'd think everybody would celebrate. Yay, amen, where is he? Let's go get him. And they all said to her, you are out of your mind. You are crazy. You are psycho. What are you talking about? It's ironic. But she kept insisting. She was persistent. No, Peter is really there. I know his voice. And they kept saying, Okay, well, maybe there is somebody. Maybe it's Peter's angel, whatever that means. So there's some doubt there. That's what Christians do. We pray for something. Dear God, do this. Give me this. And then God does it, and we don't believe it. Verse 16, but Peter continued knocking, banging away. And when they had finally, they opened the door, and they saw him, and they were amazed. They were just awestruck. Wow, it really is Peter. Verse 17, and then Peter instantly goes, shh, because they're probably just ready to celebrate and yell, and it's a weird hour at night, and Peter doesn't want to raise any commotion. He knows that he is vulnerable. They're on his tail. He will be rearrested, put to death for escaping from prison. So he motions to them with his hand to be silent, and he described to them how the Lord had let him out of the prison, and he said, report these things to James, Who's that? James, the half-brother of the Lord, not the James that just got killed, the apostle. James, the half-brother of the Lord, who rose to prominence in the church and became the head of the church and presided over the council uh, in Acts chapter 15. James, the half-brother of the Lord, who used to not believe in Jesus and mocked Jesus in John chapter 7, who's now a believer and one of the strongest men in the church. Go and report these things to James, that I am out, I am free, God set me free. And the other brethren. And then he left and went away to another place. And we don't know where he went. He just ran. He went into hiding. Maybe for months. Maybe for years. It's amazing. God answers prayer. Prayer moves God. Here's a challenge. When was the last time, uh, or just think right now, of a time where God answered a very specific prayer that you had immediately? Because that's what happened here. See if you can think of one. You prayed very specifically. It wasn't a little thing. It was a huge thing. Dear God, I need your help here. Or dear God, help this fellow believer in this area. See if you can think of a time where God did that. Now, every prayer 
I believe is miraculous, that is answered. Every prayer that is answered by God is miraculous. Now, miracles happen in different ways. Today they happen providentially and at God's discretion and sovereignty. Sometimes very different than how it happened with the apostles in the days and the age of the signs and wonders. But if I pray for someone who is not saved, I remember when I got saved in college, I immediately began praying for the salvation of my family. Dear God, save my brother, who's a year older than me. I prayed this prayer in November. I go home in December. I give him the gospel. He got saved. It was one of those, like, real salvations, because here it is 30 years later, he's still fired up as a Christian. That's like, the, that is a miracle. It was immediate it was, frankly, it was a little unexpected because I think I was praying for his salvation. I just got rejected by seven of my other siblings who said, I was loco. Leave me alone. You don't know nothing. You're a freshman in college. You're the youngest of the family. Quit bothering me. You're being divisive. I don't want to talk about religion. I was very discouraged. Then I talked to my brother who's a year old. And boom, he gets saved. Wow. Do you have an incident in your Christian life where God did that? Answer to prayer supernaturally instantaneously if you do you need to cherish it be reminded of it hang on to it keep thanking god for it we can't forget those kind of things our our mind gravitates towards the negative as sinners oh i have this problem and this problem and this problem and this problem wait a minute what about that unbelievable supernatural immediate miracle that god did that no one can replicate so you know that god did it what about that Think on things that are true, lovely, pure, good. It makes a difference. That's what's going on here. It's amazing. So we have the power of prayer. God moves in response to the prayers of his people. And then finally, there's the promise of protection. God cares for his church. Now, the promise of protection. So 18 through 24, the prom- Wait, Pastor Cliff, I don't see a promise delineated in 18 through 24. Well, I do. It's not in 18 to 24 in terms of being worded or delineated, it's actually illustrated here in this passage. A promise of God is illustrated here based on the promise Jesus gave in Matthew 16, 18, when he said to his apostles, I'm going to build my church shortly here, and the gates of hell, the gates of death itself, the most evil force in the universe will not undermine or stop the church. That was a prophecy from Jesus. That was a promise from Jesus. And one of the most violent yet powerful evil men in the days of the apostles and the church tried to shut the church of Christ down. And Jesus is true to his word and his promise. And that's what this highlights. God's power is greater than the power of evil. God's power is greater than Herod himself. That's the promise. So let's look at it. Now, verse 18. Uh, Now, when day came, so several hours go by. These Roman soldiers, they're knocked out, like I said, with divine anesthesia, probably. There was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. So they all wake up, and so you can see these guys. They are frightened. These Roman soldiers, what in the world happened? Whoa, where did their sol- where, where'd that Peter guy go? Hey, did you see him? Did you see him? Those 16 guys are commiserating, and they know they are in trouble. Probably their life is on the line because that's what Rome did to soldiers who allowed prisoners to escape if it was a capital offense against that criminal. Peter was going to die, and because the soldiers lost him, they will pay for it with their life. 
That's why it says there, there, is, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers. They were frightened to death. Where did he go? It was your fault. No, it was your fault. Okay, whatever. What are we going to tell Herod? What lie can we come up with? Verse 19, when Herod had searched for Peter, remember, the Jews were banking on this. They knew that Peter was arrested, and, and Herod was going to get all the glory from the influential Jews. They're counting on it. They're, wait, they're ready to celebrate. The public hearing and execution of that Christian leader, Peter. They already have box seats for the event. Public spectacle. And Peter knows his re- or Herod knows his reputation is on the line. So Herod scours the area, can't find Peter. He examined the guards, cross-examined the guards, in order that they be led away to execution, says the New American Standard. That's probably true. Then Herod went down from Judea. What does he do? He splits the scene. Herod bails. He doesn't want to be embarrassed. So he leaves Judea and goes down to Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast where he had his lavish grandpa's fortresses and temples and palaces. And he was spending time there. Now, verse 20, Herod spent much time there. We don't know how many months probably. Uh, He's there residing in Caesarea. He's protected. He's not subject to the scorn of the Jews. And Herod is there, and yet he gets angry once again with another group of people. He was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, which are close by and on the coast. And so he's angry at these citizens, thousands if not millions of people in Tyre and Sidon. And with one accord, they came to him, uh, to Herod, and having won over Blastus, King Herod Agrippa's chamberlain or his personal servant, they were asking for peace with Herod. So Herod Agrippa got mad at these citizens in the close by towns. And as a result, he began to withhold food that those cities were dependent upon from Herod. He's, he's starving these two cities. We know this from history. And so they began plead. They want to make their case to Herod. Herod, don't starve us. We want to make peace. We think you're great. So they talked to his personal servant, this guy named Blastus, a personal servant to King Agrippa, who lives with Herod in charge of his personal affairs, daily schedule. This is great access. They talked to the right guy. And they were successful. Herod agrees. Oh, okay. You want to love me, shower me with praise, bribe me, bring it on. And they were asking for peace. Let's bring a truce. And because their country was fed by the king's country, in verse 21, on an appointed day, that means Herod created his own holiday, the day of Herod, he's going to glorify himself. That's why I say about Acts chapter chapter 12, Herod glorifies himself. And I have a friend who knows sign language, and she said, it's this way, Acts chapter 12, Herod glorifies himself. That's how you can remember the chapter. So he's going to have a holiday for himself. He dresses up for the occasion. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal kingly apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to the people. Probably all about himself. Me, me, me. I, I, I. And 22 of the people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. And they're thinking, I just want some food. The voice of a God. This sounds like Nebuchadnezzar. This was blasphemous. Herod should have known that. And instead of telling the people, no, I'm not a God, he welcomes it and ascribes to himself deity. Yes, I am God. That's what Nebuchadnezzar did. God struck Nebuchadnezzar 550, whatever it was, 600 B.C. 
and humbled him. God does the same thing to Herod. Verse 23, and immediately, immediately, immediately at the climax of this public celebration of Herod, as he's accepting praise for being a deity, immediately an angel of the Lord. This was a supernatural intervention by God and his wrath. Remember Malachi chapter 1, verse 4, that said God will forevermore inflict wrath on the people of Edom forevermore. This is a fulfillment of that prophecy because Herod is from Edom. And God inflicts wrath upon him just as the scriptures said that he would. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck Herod Agrippa I because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. Immediately inflicted and died on the spot. Josephus writes of the death of Herod Agrippa in detail, and it parallels and complements perfectly Luke's account. That's exactly how Herod died. He was in Caesarea. We know it. He was around where his palace was. There was a holiday celebrating himself. People were praising him for being a god. And he died when his intestines burst open and was devoured and eaten by worms that came from the inside that were 10 to 12 inches long. And then this radical transit, this is a gory, ghastly scene of wrath. And then verse 24, the transition, but the word of the Lord continued to grow. Herod and his empire died immediately on the spot, yet the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. No one can stop the church. That's Luke's point. Isn't that exciting? What a praise to be a part of the church, to be a Christian, to believe in the gospel, to know Jesus Christ personally. He is our Savior. We are a part of his body. We are a part of his church. Jesus is true to his promise. Nothing can overcome the church. It's his personal spiritual family, and that's what God is still doing today, 2,000 years later. There's this long train of people who have come along in their power and ignorance trying to shut down the church and Jesus Christ and snuff it out of existence, and there are plenty of those kind of people today. They're not going to be successful. The church goes on. God's people goes on. They will be protected. With that, let me give you three things to think about that are practical blessings and highlights to take away from this passage. Number one, you will be persecuted as a a Christian, but trust God through it. Trust God through your persecution and suffering for being a Christian. We are experiencing that more and more here in America today. Christianity is under siege. But trust God through it. He'll be faithful. Number two, think of an amazing prayer that God answered immediately in your life, as I already challenged you earlier, and thank him for that and meditate on that. Not just once, but many times. Number three, pray fervently. That was the word used in this passage, fervently, seriously, intentionally, continually. Pray fervently for another believer or another person that you know, that you personally know, because that's what was going on with Peter. Pray for fervently for another person you know who has a need every day this week. That's just my challenge for the next six days. Just pick one person. They have a physical need. They have a spiritual need. They have a practical need. And commit them to prayer and pray for them fervently for the next six days and see what God's will might be. God will answer that prayer. He'll either answer with the answer he gave to James. James, you will die and leave this earth, but you will come to heaven. That's an answer to prayer. Or it will be like the answer from Peter. Peter, you are released. You have more to do for the Lord on earth. 
And the third answer might be, wait. Wait, I heard you. Wait. With that, let's go ahead and thank the God, uh, God for his word. Father, we thank you for our time together. And again, time in your word. Time is God's people. Your people, your saints, to worship, to encourage one another through fellowship. The privilege we have to learn together from your word. God, we ask for your help. We need your help. We need your strength. We need the Holy Spirit to trust you in times of suffering and to trust you in times of persecution for our faith. God, also bring to remembrance uh, many answered prayers where you showered blessings upon us, showing that you care for us. And God, also we need your help to persist in prayer fervently on behalf of fellow brothers and sisters and even those who don't know you because you've asked us very simply to pray for one another. We want to do that. We want to be obedient. And most of all, we want to see you glorified. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.